welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Lindsay. I'm Ron. We're here to review Manhunter, starring William Peterson, Kim Greist, Joan Allen, Brian Cox, Dennis Farina, Stephen Lang, and Tom Noonan. Based on the novel Red Dragon by Thomas Harris and directed by Michael Mann, released in 1986 on a $15 million budget, grossed $8.5 million plus uh, when it was in the theaters, didn't really make a splash, not a lot of critical acclaim, but it did introduce the world to Hannibal Lecter, and five years later, that would be an iconic moment for Anthony Hopkins and horror movies and all the like, as we would get into that. But why are we talking about Manhunter? Well, because it is 2021 and this is this movie's 35th anniversary. And in the 35 years since it was released, it's another one of the many films that I think film Twitter and other places have gone to reevaluate and have more thoughts about. And I certainly have a lot of strong thoughts about it, but I wanted to talk about it with you two and really get a sense of what it was. And Lindsay, let's start with you. Like ever seen this before. And then like Hannibal Lecter's whole oeuvre as, as a general concept. Yeah. So I have seen the Anthony Hopkins version of Hannibal Lecter. This is the first time I ever saw this movie. Um, the first time I even heard of it, Jay, was when you said, hey, we're going to review Manhunter. Have you ever seen it? And I said, no. And you said, perfect. So that was this was my first introduction to it. Oh, so that's thank you. Perfect. Oh, well, I don't know if you'll be thanking me after we get through it or not, but we'll see. <laughs> I, I weirdly don't have much of a history with this movie or with Hannibal Lecter. I've seen all the movies. I've seen this. I've seen all the other movies uh, I saw. And I think I actually reviewed the young Hannibal Lecter movie that came out a few years ago. I think I wrote that up on Den of Geek. Uh, and I am a big fan of the uh, Hannibal TV series that was on NBC, which was amazing and, and took a lot. It felt like it took a lot stylistically from this one, but just with less uh, dark lighting and more like bright lighting. Yeah, that, that Hannibal series, just to get out of the way real quick with Hugh Dancy and, and Mads Mikkelsen and Larry Fishburne and a you know, host of other great actors, is the superior version of telling this story as, as it's been turned from book to screen. And I'll just go ahead and spoil that and say now this third season is pretty much the Red Dragon arc, though they change a good bit at the end, but it fits with that series. If you've never watched that series, watch it and you watch it on prime and you think like, okay, it's no big deal, but think that was on NBC and the amount of gore they get away with on cable television is pretty impressive, you know, considering they, they killed it after three seasons, but um, you know, we're here to talk about this one. I was not aware that this existed until I was in college. And I think it was one of those early IMDB things. Like I was a big fan of silence of the lambs. I was, I think just starting high school when that came out, but my whole family went and saw that in the theaters because we'd heard about it. And I read the book afterward. I mean, I was, I thought that was cool. And I remember a friend of mine in high school read a lot of Thomas Harris stuff and he read red dragon. And he said, yeah, you should check it out. They made a movie out of it, but it sucks. That's all he ever said about it. And I was like, okay. And this was, you know, years before they did it again. And so I'd read, you know, silence of lambs and Hannibal and all that kind of stuff. And, 
you know, maybe someday we'll get around to some of those. So I won't tell all my thoughts on them, but they're, they're different pieces of work, but even as just a, a book though, Red Dragon's always been one of those that I say like, well, you know, this is a prime example of a really interesting story in a book that doesn't quite get its justice when you put it on the screen. And I used to say that up until they did that third season of that Hannibal show, which is pretty, pretty good and pretty faithful to it, lifting a lot of direct dialogue out. But I found this in college because I was a Michael Mann fan. I'm still a Michael Mann fan. I He kind of got me really turned on to all of his stuff. And so I was going back and someone said, you got to watch Manhunter. And I found it in the video rental for you know, 99 cents or whatever at the movie gallery or whatever existed at the time, kids. And I rented that sucker and watched it. And I was like, okay, that's uh, well, that's interesting. And uh, you know, I just kind of all I thought about it. I remember Tom Noonan was, you know, the bad guy in last action hero and many other creepy things. And Joan Allen, I'd seen do like serious work and stuff. And Dennis Freena is, you know, one of my favorite ex cops turned actor. Of, and he's also awesome. Uh, but, uh, you know, William Peterson to me, like was just a blank. I was like, eh, okay. And this was before he was CSI and all that action. So I saw this, didn't really think much about it. Watched it again several years later. And this may be the third or fourth time I've actually sat and made myself sit through it the whole time. I mean, it's been on, you know, it's on AMC sometimes and stuff like that but or hbo or whatever and i'll watch a piece or two of it but i think the, the telling part was i tried to get rachel to watch it with me, my wife and about 12 minutes into it she's like this kind of sucks i think i'm gonna watch something else <laughs> so she was not a fan of this but uh i'll reserve my full review till we get into it but yeah i uh either of you watch this with a significant other Yes, I did and it was very entertaining <laughs> to hear the color commentary on this as well because I had no idea what I was walking into Jay I believe your description of this to me was quote an indie Miami Vice version of Hannibal Lecter so yeah. when I heard that it made it sound way cooler than it actually was and uh and that's why Brian and I were both like okay we're in yeah we're gonna watch it we'll make dinner we'll watch it and the whole time. And then it just became like a fun oh, riffing off of each other the whole time. So I have a fun, I have a few quotes from both of us. You should have recorded that. You could have your experiencing this. <laughs> I know. I know. I, I didn't think. I didn't think. But maybe mm. next time. <laughs> I did not. I literally got done watching it again like five minutes before I sat down to record. So. Because that's how I roll. Hey, no, there's nothing wrong with that because this movie has this great ability to erase itself as you're watching it. Like, it's amazing how much you can sort of remember of it, but how much it's just a every time I watch it, it's like a blank. And I, I don't think I'm too far off that it is kind of Miami Vice and sort of street. And I do want to say $15 million in 1986 for a cop thriller horror movie was a lot of money. Like they didn't pour that kind of money in all them friggin' Jason sequels at the time. And I mean, it showed, but they all made you know more money on the back end of that than this did. Um, I find it funny. The funniest story about this in the background is Dino De Laurentiis is really the production end behind the entire Hannibal Lecter series. And a lot of Thomas Harris novels anyway, because he's a big Thomas Harris mark or was. And I've always considered Dino De Laurentiis, Ron, to be kind of like a more high-class Golan Globus, but (laughs) missing the mark in a lot of ways. And they changed the name of this at the last minute from Red Dragon, which is what the book is, and it's all referenced in it, 
to this because they had done a movie called You're the Dragon that was a huge failure. And he thought, well, people just won't go to a movie called Dragon, so we have to change that now. It sounds ridiculous, but it's also the kind of thing you, you can believe coming from a studio head. <laughs> that is really a top-notch Dino De Laurentiis thought process. He, you, you really nailed it on the head when you said that he is the high-class Golden and Globus because this is 100% a very expensive B-movie through and through. And to be fair to the to the book, too, having read it, and it's been a while, but I remember it pretty well, it's it's a pulp thriller. I mean, Thomas Harris writes pulp thrillers. If you, re- you ever want to have a real fun, go back to the 70s and watch a movie called Black Sunday, which is sort of a precursor to Tom Clancy's Sum of All Fears, where somebody tries to blow the Super Bowl up with a blimp. And uh, it's pretty intense, but the book is really good as like those airport kind of paperback novel i happened to grab that one once at um doing one of those holiday times when everybody's going to sit around the living room and stare at each other for no reason at all and you just need something else to do is before i had a smartphone so i chewed through that book one holiday uh, many moons ago but yeah this one sort of works along the same lines too it's it's um in the same the same vein either of you have ever read the book before no, and I wish um, I had known that it was a book beforehand. I probably would have. I probably would have delved into it, but I've already made myself the note to go back and read it. I think I've read more Charlene Harris than I have Thomas Harris. <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> I think I'll give us a quick plot summary, and then we can get into this movie, as it were. Will Graham, played by William Peterson, is a retired FBI profiler dragged back into action by his mentor, Jack Crawford, played by the awesome Dennis Farina, to investigate a serial killer who's wiped out a couple of families during the last two lunar cycles. Crawford hopes Graham's abilities to get inside the head of criminals he is chasing will unlock clues the FBI needs to stop the killer before he strikes again. Graham retired after he was working on a case with Dr. Hannibal Lecter, a brilliant but psychotic psychiatrist who nearly killed Graham in the process during his capture. Graham, struggling to find a lead, visits the now in prison Lecter for help, but is clearly weary of too much contact with his old uh, friend, frenemy, whatever we want to call that. Meanwhile, the killer, Francis Dollarhide, also known as the Tooth Fairy in the press, is choosing his victim, next victims using his day job managing a film developing company where they compile home movies, and that's how he scouts out their homes. The FBI intercepts communication between Dollarhide and Lecter and attempts to draw the killer out, but this fails badly, and Graham's family is even targeted. But Dollarhide ignores the shot at Graham's family and instead decides to take out a tabloid journalist, biting off his lips and setting him on fire. Francis was also dating a co-worker, Reba, who is blind, and while they have a passionate affair, one that even involves tigers, it's not enough. And unable to control his bloodlust any longer, Dollarhide kidnaps Reba, takes her to his home, and just as he's about to kill her, Graham and the cops intervene, and in a big shootout set to Inagata de Vida, Graham is able to kill Dollarhide, but not before sustaining injuries to his face and having a refrigerator fall on him. Graham returns to his family in Florida once again, wearing incredible short shorts as credits roll and Don Johnson music plays. And that is the most 80s way I can describe the movie known as Manhunter. That description is way more straightforward than the movie would lead you to believe. <laughs> well, that that's also probably true. Um, <laughs> I, I think part of it is having, again, knowing the book and uh, having seen this and then also seeing the Red Dragon version that brett ratner made in the 2000s and then you know having seen the hannibal series it's just a story i feel like i know 
because the mm-hmm. beats just they don't ever change them it's just the same thing it's, <laughs> it's like kiss live albums like they're it's the same songs they're just slightly produced differently and uh yeah you know that that's what this is and i guess the way to dive into this because it, again all this weaves in and out and i want to ask just something from the top the thing that's always struck me about this story in this movie is that the killer is not a mystery. It's not a wait until we find him. I mean, he doesn't show up until an hour into the movie on the screen, but the fact that they blow who that is and then spend a whole act setting him up for you. What did y'all think of that? Cause that's not the usual motif for these kind of things. It, it feels like, a, it feels like the kind of thing that uh, you would get later on in Michael Mann's film career. Like when they get around to heat, because he throughout his his writing, he is always thought to be very authentic and to tell things from both the cop side point of view and the criminal side point of view. Um, specifically, when he was doing crime story, he worked with real cops and he and he worked with real undercover agents who dealt with real criminals. So he he's always kind of reached for that. Uh, balance in the story that kind of cat and mouse sort of feel where you've got you know the killer acting uh, unfettered and then people trying to pursue the killer as we watch it kind of sets a little bit of dramatic irony up because we know who the killer is we know what they're doing we know what their next move is going to be but we get to watch uh the cops who don't know this act on clues and and kind of put things together so for me i think it's a cool touch yeah, I appreciated it. I think when, honestly, like at the beginning, because you, you know, as you mentioned, Jay, we don't we don't see the killer until about an hour into it. But when Graham started having those weird monologues with himself and at the television, I was like, oh, he's the killer. He's just insane. And then very shortly after we saw the killer and I said, I take it back. <laughs> I was wrong. But now I see where this movie is going. So uh, it was easy to backtrack a little earlier on. But right off the bat, I was like, oh, Graham's, Graham's the insane one. I can see it. We're, we're seeing like a fight club, double, you know, schizophrenic situation here. But it was a little more simplistic than that. Well, you're not far off from it, though, because that's definitely what right. Thomas Harris writes about in the book. And and honestly, the way this unfolds, that is Michael Mann doing that, because in the book, you get Dollar Hyde early. Like, we always know who he is. And it's like Ron said, we get to watch the cops try to pick up the pieces we already know and watch them do it wrong and then get it right. And there's a lot of authenticity to that. And this is something that you see in Michael Mann films forever. It was in thief. You mentioned crime story. That's where he met Dennis Farina actually, who had, that's not a joke. He was a 20 year veteran of the Chicago police department before he got into acting and stuff. And, you know, he, he got all these guys to tell him and feeding these stories. And so it's, there's thief, there's heat, the, even last of the Mohicans collateral and even something like public enemies, which is, you know, based on a true story and stuff. Michael Mann is obsessed with the idea that these men that chase each other, whether they're killers or cops are the same people. They're just on different sides of the fence, you know, and, and, this movie in particular, this character and the way Thomas Harris wrote it is that Will Graham is a sociopath. He just knows enough about that and has enough moral tendency to say, well, I'm going to use my powers for good 
instead of to, you know, whack families in Birmingham and Atlanta. I mean, that's, that's the secret of Will Graham is that he is a crazy person and he is a psychotic, you know, but that's how he thinks like them. And that's also what has kind of driven him to run to Florida and do the things that he's done. To me, that's a really interesting dichotomy because you see a lot of similar techniques as Dollar Hyde is basically investigating these people to learn the best way to break in and do his thing. You know, he has it scouted out. He he covers every angle. He figures out what he's going to need well ahead of time and has it ready. And you see a lot of that attention to detail also reflected in how Will Graham and the FBI go about tracking him. It's that same obsessiveness about minutia, the same little details, the same like, oh, I should. There's a little bit of talcum powder there. He took his glove off. You better swab this body for prints. Check the eyeballs because he's got a weird thing about mirrors. You know, that's that's it's obsessive meeting obsessive. Yeah, and I think we see that I we see this like whole dichotomy yin yang thing too from the very beginning. And I remember thinking like this is absolutely intentional the way it's set up in one of that like it's one of the first scenes where Graham and Crawford are sitting on the beach and they're very clearly in this placement where they're facing opposite directions. Crawford is in a suit, Graham is in you know, probably three day old shorts and a t-shirt and they look very different and it looks like a yin yang symbol almost. And so it's very clearly, I mean, it looks like it is intentionally trying to show like how different the two of them are and still working together from the very get go. Lindsay, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I just watching it this time, I caught onto something that I think Michael Mann is doing with that scene is Crawford is facing the ocean, the deep end, and Will yeah. Graham is facing his family, the land. And Crawford is literally trying to drag him back off the deep end to do this again. And, you know, Michael Mann is not one for wasted dialogue. And I appreciate the the soundscape and kind of the quietness that that scene has and you know it's not something the entire movie carries but it's just in some of those introductory things a lot of times you watch man movies that's kind of how you start with a character like i I think in heat you see robert de niro like walk through five places and steal six cars he never says a word you know and but you know everything you need to know about him just by watching him move and so it's a lot of that same stuff so but yeah i mean i think the thing to take away is that graham and dollar hide are the same side of the coin and and it's not the first time Graham's felt like that. And it's why he's so scared to sort of turn this on I, before we get into to picking at the movie, because I do have lots of nits to pick and I'm sure you all do too. I, I want to yep. say that one thing I will appreciate about this movie and in all of its versions, and it's in the book too, is how much like real actual FBI police type work they show people doing and that it's not just one guy it's a table full of people and there's, you know, there's the guy from Knott's Landing is the handwriting expert. And there's, you know, Chris, uh, what's his name from uh, cabin boy is, you know, some other kind of expert and all this. I mean, you've got all these people, you know, their faces from stuff. And I love that they show that it's never just one cop. It's a team of cops that get all this stuff, kind of stuff done. Wait, was that really Chris Elliott? 
that's a very young Chris Elliott. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for the last name. I could not remember, but yeah, that's Chris Elliott. Yep. Wow, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I do like that touch because uh, when I was in high school, they had this thing called the Explorers Program, which you may or may not have heard of. But uh, my Explorers Program. In mind too. Did you partake? I did one year. I did a year as well. And our local Explorer thing was at the FBI. So we went into the FBI headquarters. We met with an FBI agent. We did all kinds of cool stuff uh, talking about crimes. And it was a really good time. But one of the things that he emphasized is that this is, you are not, you are putting pieces together. Other people are doing, are putting the pieces together for you. So like we had our agent who was our, our explorers post leader and he was great. But every time we were going to do a thing like handwriting analysis or fingerprinting or um, sweep and clear operations like in a dark room, he would bring in someone like, this is the thing I do here. We're all going to do this together. Check this out. This is the thing I do. You know, this is they literally pay me to sit here and do fingerprint uh, lifting all day. And I run it through the computer and it was it was really cool. But it it and it's good to see that this is reflected in like. It, it it makes total sense to me that this is reflected in how Michael Mann's going to construct these scenes because he's nothing if not like captain attention to detail. Yeah, completely. I mean, then that's what makes it, at least in my end, it's in, that's the interesting part of the movie when they're unraveling all the knots and they're trying to figure out. And I, any of these movies, these procedural kind of things, I mean, that that's kind of the joke about Law and Order is that if, if you actually pay attention to the cut scenes, like the cut, you know, black screens in between Law and Order, you'll realize the amount of dates that they cover on a case and that they overlap all the time. And it's trial part 45 and you only see the little snip. And that's supposed to be Dick Wolf saying, hey, I'm just showing you what you need to know to fit in this 48 minute window. But it's a lot more than that, even though it is the trope of how fast you can solve a crime in an hour. Right. But if you pay attention to it, it's over a lot of time, but I love the fact that it, it you have all these experts and the fact that this movie is so dated in the eighties and the book was written in the late seventies, early eighties. So like they're talking about half inch VHS tape and, you know, I got to run it through my book of, of, uh, fingerprints which means like putting up you know laminated sheets so you can look at it on a screen i mean it is not nearly as sophisticated as what we have today or even what we would have 10 years from this time um but oddly enough it doesn't totally outdate the movie like you know i kind of have to remember like oh yeah nobody has a cell phone in 1986 or at least not in this setting of this movie it's it's all you know done with pictures and file folders and stuff like that and the file effects yeah, oh wow yeah rolodex and the yeah and the, the vtr at one point they call it a videotape recorder which <laughs> just made me laugh <laughs> wow yeah so well let's talk about our characters here a little bit though because uh, i think this is where the nits will come out um william peterson can we all disagree he kind of sucks i mean no offense to the guy he's had a great career but he is so blank and weirdly intense at the wrong time. Like I, I don't get what this performance is all about. And William Peterson was Graham, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Just mm-hmm. making sure. Yeah. I'll, I will say yes. Very blank 
his bow leggedness was so distracting. <laughs> that's one of my main, that is, I mean, among many, but that is, that's a big issue for me, I think, is that there are at least three scenes that I can think of where he was just, I mean, the legs were just like an O <laughs> when he was walking, especially in, cause it's a beautiful shot. And one of the few that I really truly liked in the film was um, they're like coming through like an alley or an overpass and it's like blues and blacks. And it's like that quintessential detective shot, right? Of this guy walking through this tunnel. And then you just see his bow legs. <laughs> I was like, what does this guy do? Is he a horseback rider for a living? He, Is he, he a did, cowboy? He did go it's, to Idaho State. So, I mean, he's man. from Chicago, though. So, he's, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was to the point it was, it was, it became distracting for me. Yeah. I, I'll tell you what was distracting for me. And you hit on one of the things, Lens, when he's having those conversations with himself. And I yes. know what it, what it is, is he's trying to get in his head. But the energy is so off. It's like, you had to touch her, didn't you? It's just, it's like Vince McMahon or something. I know. Yeah. It is off because it is, it's flat. Like he has one tone and one volume throughout most of his monologues. You know, see, I had the exact opposite take on all that because I thought all of his weirdness worked well because he's supposed to be a weird, crazy man who gets lost in the heads of these serial killers and who doesn't seem to have much of a connection to reality uh, outside of the work. Cause you know, he's got a, a wife and child, but they don't exactly seem to, he doesn't seem to be like a, an everyday, he doesn't seem to be an everyday presence in the life of his family. He yeah. seems like he's physically there, but mentally he is not home. Well, and it's, I don't know that it's, it's expressly said in this version. It's definitely in the book and it's in the, the other versions of this. That's not his son. That's his wife and that's her son. And he's stepdad. And so, as far as the kid's concerned, that's dad. But there's this whole bit in the book about where, like, Hannibal Lecter tells him, like, that was smart of you. You kind of made an instant family because, you know, you can't breed your own crazy genes again and all this stuff. Like, there's a lot of that back and forth. And Graham doesn't exactly disagree with it. But I, I think you, there's a scene where, like, they're buying groceries when they're at the hideaway house or whatever. And the kid's trying to relate to him. He's trying to tell him, I thought bad things, really awful things. And then I didn't think them anymore. Yes, I like Folgers. <laughs> I mean, it's just so stilted. And yeah, but okay, so so you're saying the weirdness worked for you, huh? Yeah, the the weirdness of his whole performance worked for me because it was, I mean, he's got to match energy and weirdness with Tom Noonan because he's trying to get ahead <laughs> of Dollar High. That's true, and that's a formidable task for any performer to to try to be as weird as Tom Noonan, and yet you know I think William Peterson is more than up to the task of being unsettling so outside of his bow legs and his weird fashion Lindsay, what did you make out of his performance because that is good so, to notice because i noticed it too i was like i don't know what football injury this guy had before he started yeah. acting but holy cow i get i see i see where you're going with this ron and i like it and i'm almost convinced i think for me i would as a director or as an actor i would have taken it 
a step further so that it was very clearly a choice, like an acting choice of I am this way because this is the character and this is what I'd like. For me, it wasn't big enough to convince me that he was doing it intentionally and not just bad acting. I'll say Hugh Dancy in the Hannibal show gets everything that Ron's talking about here as being that just offbeat weirdo. And I think he just can kind of play those characters anyway. He's everything I've ever seen him in. That's pretty much what he's done. And I think he just gets it or whatever. Edward Norton famously in red dragon said, I did this for the paycheck. I don't care. So, and Brett Ratner was directing him. So come on, you know, like there's, there was no direction. So it, that, that is what it is. I wanted to review three movies at once, but what y'all are talking about is that's a character trait. What I'm saying is for me is Peterson almost gets there. And then for whatever reason, he veers into what would have been like early lifetime style acting and it just becomes too much. And I think, yeah. It's, yeah. We call that bag of tricks. Thank you. In the okay. acting industry. It's just like you're you're leaning on the things that you know works, but are not necessarily nuanced for a particular character. And so his delivery of the lines that were written were fine, but they could have been better. His whole relationship with his wife is really very weird late 80s right yeah kim grice gets mm-hmm. nothing to do with this movie and she's a good actress um they fixed that with mary louise parker and red dragon i'll say that she's given a lot more to do and in the book the molly character has a lot more to say and do this woman's job seemed to be lay around half naked most of the time and stare longingly at william peterson in the dark like that's all they gave her to do and i felt bad for her at some point i'm like she like should have a little bit more say stake something in this like they, their conversations are so stilted weird it's it's almost like this is where george lucas learned how to write romance too and, and michael mann sucks at this too it's the worst parts of heat it's all the romantic stuff between um amy brenneman and robert de niro like there's no chemistry and it's not on the page and it's not between the people and it was just something oddly strange about the way that these two actors sort of crawled all over each other half the time well, I mean, this is really early in William Peterson's career. This is like his first actual like role. I think he is, his debut was in like To Live and Die in L.A. And he was yeah. he played a bit part thief and he was on one of um, Michael Mann's episodes of Twilight Zone. Uh, so this is he's definitely like finding his way, I guess, as a performer. Um, but I also feel like. I feel like a lot of the romantic subplot and the relationship stuff in uh, Michael Mann's works are perfunctory because that's not what he's interested in. But there's some sort of pressure. I guarantee you Dino De Laurentiis was like, need more blue light. (laughs) More half woman, yes. (laughs) Yes, put the woman in bed, uh, blue light, uh, lots of white, everyone like. Uh, When when my Hannibal Lecter die, everybody cry. <laughs> My friend Menahem say more blue light and half naked woman work. So, <laughs> well, here, see, here's the thing this is like, this is fairly early directorially Michael Mann as well, because like he'd done Thief and he is hot in the middle of like, he just got done with Police Story and he's in the middle of Miami Vice. Yep. And he, when he shoots this movie, so like this $15 million budget, 
they were thinking, oh, this is going to be a huge hit because Miami Vice was the biggest show on TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the debut of Police Story was watched by 30 million people. Yeah. You know? no, no, there was reason that there's all the reason to think this would work. But for whatever reason, it just doesn't. And I think a lot of that is because it it's not cool. There's not the cool that you get from Miami Vice. It looks cool. I think Manhunter looks great. I love the weird lighting choices. I love the fact that it's Florida and the deep south in the summer and it's always raining. Yeah, credit where it's due, though. Dante Spinati is is one of the classic cinematographers of the 80s and 90s, and he worked with Mann and Curtis Hansen and all these guys for years and Brett Ratner. But, I mean, he he shoots really interesting, good-looking stuff. So, But more beyond the way it looks, the two characters – if you unless you told me they were married to each other, I would just think they were like randomly hooking up at hotels because like they have nothing. There's no there's no marriage there that I see. I don't know. Lindsay, tell me if I'm wrong. No, you're not wrong. I didn't. I also didn't find it their relationship or lack thereof particularly off putting because it wasn't a major plot point for me. And if anything, like it probably at least saved that bit of the movie for me. Like one of my biggest pet peeves is a love story in the middle of something where it shouldn't be or clearly doesn't belong. It doesn't move the plot forward. It effectively has no purpose for character development and so on and so forth. And I don't know if that Unless it were to make Graham seem more personable. And honestly, in this case, I think it served its purpose as making Graham seem less personable and more of a sociopath. So maybe in that sense, that's why it worked for me. But I didn't find it off-putting, the lack thereof. I I didn't need it to be huge. I'm just saying like, and I know what they're doing because we're going to get to the dollar hide Reba thing in a minute. And these are again, the yin and yang to each other. And we're supposed to be watching this and you see Graham is sort of actively being dispassionate about his life and about his, you know, family and, and all this stuff. And, that that's very different because you see dollar has to make that choice eventually too. Like that's how he kills these people and all this stuff. And I don't know. It just, it's just so it's just weird. But again, it is sort of an offshoot to what's actually supposed to be going on in the movie, which is in between all his police work and, and whatnot, um, which I don't know. I, I just, I th- I felt bad for Kim Grice too, as an actress. I saw in a lot of things for you know several decades. I feel like she got nothing to do. William Peterson is very though. You're right, Ron. He's early in his career and he is proto David Caruso. And I mean that in all the ways that Caruso does things on NYPD blue and CSI and the couple of bad movies he tried to make. There's just something about those two guys that they they fit in that window. I will not let you slander session nine. <laughs> Another day, as we say here. But yeah, so, so it's a good time to kind of flip over and talk about Dollar Hud now, Francis Dollar Hud. You've already mentioned the weirdness that is Tom Noonan, Ron. Uh, we talked about him years ago on House of the Devil, and someday we'll get around to Last Action Hero. It's been on the list at Film Strip for probably a decade. But uh, yeah, he he's always a strange, off-putting presence. He's super tall. He's weirdly lanky, and he just 
He doesn't mind just sort of being the librarian that secretly thinks about slicing your throat and drinking your blood. You know, that's sort of Tom Noonan in a nutshell. He studied uh, a lot of serial killers early on to try to get his head into the role. And he's based off a serial killer that, uh, or a murderer that Michael Mann spent years being a pen pal with. Um, that's where the uh, Inigata Vida thing comes from. I did not know that. That's an interesting note because I had thoughts yeah, about that. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Wow. What What's the story then on Inagata Devita? Like serial killer love it or something? Oh, uh, yeah. He, uh, so this guy, Dennis Wayne Wallace, had been obsessed with this woman he didn't know. And he ended up murdering people because of it. I don't remember if he murdered her or not. But um, his song with the woman he was obsessed with was Inagata Devita. Wow. So Michael Mann was like, that's a long song and it sounds creepy. I can definitely set a terrorizing scene to this. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. 60s prog acid rock. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> you can pretty well do anything weird to that on screen that you want to. Iron Butterfly. That introduced a whole new group to me. Well, honestly, I knew that song only because that's the weird music my dad would listen to sometimes. But when I saw that in this movie, I was like, oh, yeah, that song. That's creepy and strange, just like the rest of this flick. Speaking of creepy and strange, Tom Noonan does excel at that, and I, he he nailed that out of the park. He did. Jay, I have a question, or Ron, because I, I, there might be something about this in the book. There was a line in the movie where um, he was talking to Reba, I believe, and she said to him that he spoke very well, which implied that there's some reason he shouldn't be well-spoken. Did yep. I read that correctly? And do you have any more uh, information on that? Yeah. There's a little bit of makeup job on Noonan. You can see he's had like a cleft palate work done Yeah, and, mm -hmm. and there's that. And so she's trying to disarm him from how he's hiding behind his, you know, stuff or whatever, the things that he's gone through. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why his, his main motivating factor. He does play factor, a creepy guy very well. That's one of the reasons why his like main motiv motivating factor is that he's looking for acceptance because I would imagine that having a facial scar and a speech impediment and being looking like Tom Noonan does not make you incredibly popular with uh, friends and peers. Yeah, that's one of the things that I, I will ding the, the Red Dragon movie for is they cast friggin' Ray Fiennes to play this. And, like, that's a gorgeous man no matter what you do to him. You cut his nose off for five movies in Harry Potter, and he's still good looking. So that, that was a mistake. Tom Noonan's much more the right energy for this, and it's much more like the dollar hide in the book. He's tall. He's weird. He, you wouldn't miss him if you saw him, but you would also pay no mind to him because he just slinks in the shadows. And that's, that's one of the cool things about the character. And I think, I think they nail it with this and I'll give Noonan a lot of credit where I think Peterson is kind of overdriving his strangeness to try to make that point. Noonan is just being what we've kind of come for him to be, but he's just very, unassuming and that's one of the scary things about serial killers if you read anything about any of them is a lot of times they're they're just unassuming normal people and thomas harris has said that this serial killer was based on btk who at the time they didn't know who that was when he wrote this but they just assumed it was somebody who disappeared in the shadows and for a long time he did 
the disappearing into the shadows is a very accurate description of BTK. Yeah, very much. And then you get Reba played by the venerable Joan Allen. I, I, again, like Joan Allen and so many other things, I don't really associate her with this kind of stuff because it's not really her forte, but I, you know, I thought she did a really good job of playing this incredibly confident, very secure person who is not limited by her disability. The fact that she doesn't have sight, she's still very good at what she does. They even give her the detail of the Braille watch, which I think is neat. Um, I, I, Honestly, it's one of the better, like her and Dennis Farina as Crawford are two of the better performances and they're on the periphery of this movie. But so much of what she does, particularly opposite of Tom Noonan, drives the second act of this movie forward. Because I'll be honest with you, if that second act is such a weird veer off to like, let's take the romantic subplot of the serial killer now, that shouldn't work, but it totally does. There are a few big moments that worked for me in this film. And I know you mentioned the tiger scene. And when I saw that, my first reaction was, this is the first moment so far in this movie where I'm like, okay, this is the first scene that I'm, I'm into. I'm really digging because I see where they're going with it. Dollar hide. Like you see his humanity. I also think it's really interesting that, He's obsessed with these mirrors and how he's seen by other people. And he ends up falling for this woman who's blind, which is a little tongue in cheek, but also kind of nice. And he takes her to this place where he knows that she'll have this once in a lifetime experience. And I don't know. It was so Mm -hmm. sweet. (laughs) I just really like that scene. It's him at that moment, though, because he at any other time, if you lock that little blonde woman in a cage with a tiger she's gonna get mauled to death right because that's what the tiger knows to do at any other time he would kill her just like he would anybody else that he's killed right but right now he's kind of sedated she's tamed him a little bit and he's letting her sort of feel that and he's trying to sort of work through his own stuff that it's one of the things that's missing in this is you don't really know why dollar hide is the way he is and the book is much more explicit about it the other versions of this story spell it all out i won't blow it here because again we'll maybe get around to those one day but that's one thing i think is missing here is you don't really know what makes him go like we know what makes graham tick because they've laid it all out for us I have no idea what makes this guy roll, but that scene, I, I, it is so weird, but it's also so like, if you want to impress a girl, like you can take her to dinner, maybe dancing, or you can take her to your veterinarian friend and let her pet a friggin' tiger. Like, I don't, what do you do on the second date? I don't know. Well, then you take her to kill Carol Baskin, I guess. <laughs> True. <laughs> okay. So you mentioned Joan Allen and Joan Allen is great. And she did a lot of study to move accurately as a blind person. Like she walked around New York with a mask over her eyes and the cane to learn how to blind walk, uh, which is pretty cool. But let's not act like Joan Allen is above this kind of material. She was in face off, Jay. Okay. You know what? She You're was right. In, she was in face off <laughs> and she is incredible in death race. She is a blast in the Jason Statham 2008 death race. Yeah. She's so good in that. Just it's kind of playing against the kind of person she would become. Again, this is still very early Joan Allen, but yeah, she's, uh, this is, you know, this, this ain't that far from playing uh goody Proctor in the crucible to me. 
Okay, I can see it. And you're right to bring up face off. I totally forgot about weirdos running their hands over her face. So she should be used to that at this point because it's happened so many times in her career. But it's, yeah. it's somehow less creepy when it's Tom Noonan. I, I, right. Who would have thought between Nick Cage, John Travolta, and Tom Noonan, we'd all go, Tom ah, Noonan's more real. <laughs> but he is. And that's what makes their relationship interesting. And like I say, it's it's a it's a neat diversion in the middle of this movie and it's played against Graham trying to still keep up with and relate to his wife as she meets him on the road and all this kind of stuff. Um, we, we haven't talked about it. Stephen Lang has kind of a bit part in this. What well, this is about early roles for somebody that big poofy hair that he had going nowadays, people are get ready to go see him and don't breathe too. If you needed that in your life. Uh, but there he is. And you know, you know, he missed the bad guy and monster from avatar and a hundred thousand other things. Right. But I had forgotten he was in this and the whole idea of the, the national tattler and like the tabloid thing. I'm like, Thomas Harris must believe that like people took the inquirer seriously the way that they do like in great Britain, because nobody like the fact that the FBI would bother with that is kind of funny to me. Maybe they do. And I'm just wrong about that. But I, I loved his whole just total sleaze reporter character though, because while I didn't know people exactly like that who were reporters, I also knew people that were just as, cunning to get the story and all they cared about was getting that headline getting that byline and and getting it done they didn't care who they stepped on to get there you know i had no idea that was the blind guy from don't breathe <laughs> well, see now, now i've revealed something new to you <laughs> i mean i knew he was kind of unsettling looking and acting and freddie Lounce is not a likable character in any version of this story um especially the tv version she's uh, they make it a female freddy there and, and she's despicable like she's somehow worse than this guy and this guy's is a scumbag yeah philip Seymour hoffman was an upgrade in uh in red dragon for this because you kind of felt bad for him but um yeah this is not a not a sympathetic character and but it's neat to see him though and the way that he gets kind of put in the middle of this thing and i I want to ask y'all, is this story asking us to root for what happens to him to happen to him? Because he gets terrorized by Dollar Hyde, gets his face bitten off and gets set on fire. Like there's a statement in that. Absolutely. Yeah, that's I feel like that's classic, almost classic horror movie, you know, algorithm. You know, you either kill. Well, you know there are certain people you kill first and no one's, especially from this movie where we're taking it from, I think Ron, you had mentioned it earlier and Jay, probably you too, where man likes to tell the story from both sides of the fence. So if he wants you to kind of get behind dollar hide as well, you're going to have him kill the most hateable character in the film first. I mean, no one was upset by that. Did he die? I, he didn't die right away, right? He went to the hospital. Yeah, they first. Yeah, yeah. He dies later from his injuries, his many injuries. Yeah. Um, but when no. he captured, when he was captured, I looked at Brian and I was like, I don't think anyone's upset by this right now. Like you kind of, you're kind of rooting for it at that point. Yeah, because what you know about that guy is that he took pictures of Graham in the hospital when. Yeah. And, and to, to say what happened to Graham after his encounter with Lecter, he nearly got disemboweled. So they had this kind of good fake scar on William Peterson's chest, the whole movie. But there were pictures of that. They got you know circulated. And this guy wrote a 
you know, a whole expose on it or whatever. So that's why you're supposed to hate him. And that's why when William Peterson, you know, half suplexes him on top of a Chevy Caprice, <laughs> you're supposed to be okay with that. And yeah, when he goes out that way, that's Thomas Harris, I think, saying that, you know, murder hungry, if it bleeds, it leads press is a bad thing. I think you're supposed to be okay with it up until the point after the face biting. I think that when, you know, when you're, when he's being terrorized, it's all good. When he's biting his face, that's kind of like a ha ha yes moment. And then you get the, the hard cut to the flaming puppet in the wheelchair careening down the hallway. And it's like, Oh wait, that's, you know, we were okay with him dying, but, I don't even think he deserved to die like that. Fun fact, not a puppet stunt man wrapped in, you know, whatever fire retardant you have to have to do it. That is a real person that did that. It looked like a real person, but I was just, I I was, was just going to assume there's no way a dude would be like, yeah, I'll sit in a, in a plastic. <laughs> dude, you've seen Halloween too. Dick Warlock walked down a hallway on fire like that like yeah, four times a in di- a row. <laughs> but there's a difference between walking down a hallway on fire and like riding a flaming chair yeah. made of hot plastic. But you have to you have to admit that's an evocative scene. Like that that strikes a like that immediately resets like oh oh I'm supposed to be scared of this now. Yeah and that really was a hard cut and very unexpected. Yeah, that was a legit jump scare, and Michael Mann doesn't do a lot of that kind of thing, so it really worked well, at least for me. Yeah, no, I, I admit it's it's not it's not what you expect. You expect something bad's going to happen to Freddie Lowndes. He's basically making him like read the Red Dragon Manifesto or whatever. Like I have seen the greatness of the you know and all that stuff. So you can because we should say how he gets him too is that they intercept this communication in the personal ads between Hannibal Lecter and Dollarhide, where they're, I don't know, making out to each other the way serial killers do or whatever. I've given weird biblical references that don't make sense, but they're code talking to each other. And the FBI is trying to figure this out. And so Graham comes up with this great idea, like, fine, I'll call up Lowndes and I'll give him the interview once and I'll just trash Dollar Hot. I'll talk about how he's, he's going down in flames and he clearly can't get it up and all this stuff and just insult him. And instead of going after the guy who said it, he goes after the reporter. And that there's something interesting about why that choice is made there. Why do you think that choice is made, Jay? I don't know because it doesn't it doesn't really flow like that's the, the part that is cut out of this that I'll just pick on it now. The whole bit about where Lecter gives him Graham's home address that pays off in the book and in many other versions of the story. And the fact that Michael Mann decided, no, we're going to cut that out of this. I, I feel like just totally short shrifts that whole moment. Like because Hannibal Lecter is trying to kill the guy who put him in jail even though he has a lot of respect for him and they're clearly, again, two sides of the same coin, he straight up sets him to get murdered by this random person. And he does not know that he has no connection to otherwise than just through these random personal ads and the, the machinations that he goes through to get to it. I'm like, that, that all seems like for not like, again, that pay it, it, it bothers me because I know that it's supposed to pay off. And then they just skip through it and go like, no, we'll just shoot people by a refrigerator instead. It felt it felt like 
that uh, that subplot you were talking about with him reaching out to him through the paper. Um, personal ads and the classifieds used to be like the 4chan of every <laughs> local publication. That's true. <laughs> like in like our local independent newspaper, Leo, there were some terrifying and despicable like ads in the back page. But that's what, you know, kept the lights on. But it's interesting because it feels like they took that idea of like him, uh, of uh, Dr. Lecter using a serial killer as a weapon. They took that basic idea. They're like, oh, let's just do this whole Kevin Bacon show about it. And that's how they made the following. Yes, it very much is like the following. I'm glad you mentioned that, Ron, because I was a fan of that. I know you followed it as well. We talked about it a good bit back in the day. But, yeah, it's very much the same kind of idea. So it's that's a good enough time, too, to talk about our Hannibal Lecter. We haven't gotten around to him here. Brian Cox um, doing this, what would become iconic character. I got to say, you know, the thing about Hannibal Lecter and what made him interesting in Silence of the Lambs is that he's in the movie for 20 minutes. And if there's anything interesting about him here, it's that he's not really a part of the story. He's just on the periphery of it. But unlike poor Graham's wife and some of these other people, at least he has something to do. And I, I, I really like him. It's not that I dislike Anthony Hopkins, but I'm like, you know, if, if he'd been in Silence of the Lambs, it would have been different energy, but it probably would have still worked. I thought he was good. I think it's universally accepted that Brian Cox is the best part of this movie. Um, but some of the other people that went out for this were John Lithgow, Mandy Patinkin, Brian Dennehy, and William Friedkin. <laughs> Friedkin, I can see, because he'd probably just pull a gun on everybody wow. in real life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, and I can see Brian Dennehy, like, murdering a guy barehanded. Straight, right? But I think if you got John Lithgow, the energy would be too similar to... Dollar hide would be yeah. too similar to Tom Newton's energy. I mean, so I yeah. really like Brian Cox, and and again, like everyone else, Brian Cox um, was based on based his performance off of a real life serial killer uh, from Scotland named Peter Manuel, and kind of took his mannerisms and his way of speaking from that guy. And my favorite part was that he was he did the audition with his back turned to the casting agents, so they could just would just pay attention to his voice and his delivery and not look at his face as he's acting, which I think is really a neat thing. And he does have a really cool sounding voice in general, but specifically in this role. So for me, I, his voice was fine, but it sounded like a Scottish actor trying to do a British accent and you could hear it slip and his Scottish accent slip through, which may be, a character choice. I didn't realize that he was basing it off of an actual serial killer. So maybe that went into his thought process as someone who didn't know that I was just watching it for the first time. That's kind of how it came off. That said, I did like his Hannibal a lot. And one of my favorite, favorite moments in the whole movie was when he was on the phone and he's just laying on his bed and his feet are up on the wall and he just looks like a teenage girl chatting on the phone. <laughs> and yeah. it just served. I I just love like that. Um, I don't know. I just I love how that played off. And it, I appreciated it very much. 
I mean, it's so neat what he does is he has to, you know, he said, I want to talk to my lawyer. They bring him the phone and he uses a gum wrapper and he MacGyver's the phone where he can make a phone call. And all he's trying to do is get Will Graham's home address because he's, you know, posing as some academic research thing. And he just goes, the way he goes through it, though, like you say, Lindsay, he's like, he's sitting there chewing that gum like it's no big deal. And he's setting up like, I'm going to have this guy's whole family wiped out by this serial killer who clearly needs me to think for him because he admires me so much. So, okay, fine. I'll do it. And he does it like it's no big deal. Like, you know, they talk about it in Silence of the Limbs, how his heart rate never gets above 85. And I'm like, I can believe it. Like this, this guy is so twisted that unlike Graham, who gets so wrapped up in all this shit that it just blows his mind. Really? The lecture just sort of rolls around like this all day. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's scary to think about that. There's someone out there in the world that exists like that. But he has a little bit more energy than, say, um, Anthony Hopkins doing the same role. He, he he feels a bit more like he would be a more capable murderer. Uh, yeah. Just from a physical standpoint. Yeah. The the guy it's, it's based off of, it's interesting. You said, uh, Lindsay, when you talked about the accent, because he was born in America. And he lived in New York and Detroit until he was like six. Then he went back to Scotland. But the part of Scotland he is he lived in was the Scottish Lowlands, which is on the border with England. So you get kind of a mixed accent. So I think it's very much a specific choice that like Brian Cox is trying to make, uh, whether you think it's successful or not, is another story. I, it kind of works for me because uh, just based off of the dude that who, whose story it was, um, it kind of fits that profile. Figure out his accent. I, I had to look up the actor. I was like, where is he from? Is this fake? Is it just feels like it's slipping, but that, that makes way more sense. See, I didn't know any of that either. And I've never caught the slip in it too. I thought that was just the idea of, of Hannibal Lecter's mind is running so far into overdrive at all times that he just gets his words ahead of himself. Sometimes I've seen people do that. And I just thought it was an acting choice because Again, part of that is in form of the fact that I've seen Brian Cox act for 40 years and so many different things. And so I just, I, I, I've come to expect it. That's what's neat about going back and watching a movie that's 35 years old that has so many known people in it is you can see either the genesis of what they do, or you just see what they are. Like Tom Noonan has played the same character now all these years and he just keeps doing it and it works. Whereas and, and in a lot of ways, William Peterson has too. I think maybe he just dialed the Caruso knob a little bit better um, as he got as he got older. Uh, but yeah, I, I I don't know. I I like the Hannibal Lecter here. I like the fact that he's just it's like a little Tabasco sauce. There's just enough in there that I feel it and I know it's in my green beans, but it's not overwhelming what I'm eating. Yeah, he's got almost this. It's a more playful Hannibal Lecter than like Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, Anthony Hopkins, I feel like I'm listening to a, a professor who was also a serial murderer, you know, and there's like an intelligence to it that's good. But Brian Cox, I'm like, I could see this guy being a fast and loose psychiatrist that would hang out with FBI agents and stuff. Yeah. He's writing a few extra he, scripts for people. Sure. He he's def he's he's the sort of actor who plays both intelligent and like imposing because he's a big dude like he's a he's a he's a wide man he's a large man and he's not like out of shape or anything he's just physically it's like 
It's like Brian Dennehy was just a wall of a human being, you know. Yeah, Even in his John Goodman esque days, he was just still a broad shouldered big dude. Yeah, he looks like the kind of dude that when he throws a punch, you feel it, and and it doesn't feel good. Uh, but he probably didn't throw more than one because he didn't need it. <laughs> no, no, not not at his size. But yeah, I think that's um, that's 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 an interesting. He does have a really interesting physicality. Uh, you're right, Lindsay and Jay, especially with how at ease he is in jail. But it doesn't feel mannered. It feels like, well, this is my life now. Uh, but I, I'm, you know, I, I will make the best of it, and I will, you know, I'll make friends. Yeah, right. Like he's still, you know, he's talking to the guards, and you know, he 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 does that whole bit too, where you can tell, still tell, you know, he's got the the psychiatrist brain or the therapy brain going because he's he's telling Will Graham what he wants to know, but then he's like. Hmm, your hands are rough and you smell like old spice and ew, you know, all this stuff. Like you're sitting there psychoanalyzing. I mean, I, I, I like crack up every time that speech comes out. Cause I'm like, man, like I, if I had been William Peterson, I wouldn't have got through a take without cracking up every time he dropped that on me. Cause it's just so off and out, out of the blue. Even his interactions with Will Graham, it, it makes me understand the energy that William Peterson is going for a little bit better than say, the rest of the film because I can see catching Hannibal Lecter uh, attempting to match wits with Hannibal Lecter, attempting to get in that head to be the kind of thing that you can't let go. Yeah. And he even says that to Crawford at one point, he's like, you know, I, I couldn't ever get him out of my head and, and now I got to go back and ask him again, you know, and that that's different in the than in the book. In the book, Crawford kind of says, "Why don't you go and talk to Hannibal Lecter?" You know, because uh, yeah, yeah, he can't hurt you now. He's behind bars or whatever. And Graham like really resents that. <laughs> he's like, "The dude cut me in half, and you want me to go talk to him?" Like, the, but in this movie though, it, did, it, it they don't play it that way. They play it where it's his idea on the street after he beats the crap out of Stephen Lang. He's like, "Oh, maybe I'll go see Hannibal Lecter now." I'm like, "Maybe, maybe you should have a cup of coffee, chill out for a little bit before you go do that." But I don't know. Uh, there's, there's just a lot of, again, it's a lot of the strange choices that that happen to sort of tail through this story and everything. So, Jay, before you move on, would you say that Hannibal Lecter is Kylie Minogue to Will Graham because he can't get her out of, <laughs> can't get you out of my head? I did not realize we'd be referencing that today, but um, yeah. We'll we'll go with that. Maybe he's um, maybe he's a little Carly Rae Jepsen too. You know, just wants to cut to the feeling, and uh, <laughs> we'll go with it. I mean, there. he does. I mean, he does say that Will Graham called me. Maybe so. That. <laughs> I mean, that is true. So. <laughs> Well, uh, to bring us back on the rail uh, for, for a second here after we went uh, the 10s pop songs uh, on everybody uh, in the serial killer movie, wh- what did you make of the way that Dollar Hyde finally loses it? And when he, when he sees Reba with her ex-boyfriend and that whole, you know, the misunderstanding bit or whatever, and that's just what sort of sets him off or whatever. Or let me ask you, is that what sets him off? Or has he already decided, I can't be with this woman, I've got to kill her and then go kill this new family too? I think there was already bloodlust. I don't think he had planned on killing her that night necessarily. He 
at least uh, in his facial expressions, he looked because when she pulled in or when he heard that car pulled in, pull in, he had this really excited expression. And whether that was he was super excited because, yay, I get to kill someone or super excited because, yay, I get to see this girl I like. Who's to say? Um, But his mannerisms visibly changed when he saw them together. So I think maybe he did plan to kill her, but I don't know if he planned to that night. Also didn't hurt for the fact that the guy she was with, he absolutely hated. And he already kind of set that up. He had a very hateable face. Yeah, very much. I don't feel like he had intended to kill her at all. I think that at a certain point he would have killed her just because I think at a certain point he wouldn't be able to retain it. But it's a common behavior you see with serial killers. They get married and attempt to have a normal life. And then they just go out every once in a while and kill a prostitute or a hobo. BTK. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, BTK, Ted Bundy had a wife and a girlfriend and, and a normal life. You know, even Jeffrey Dahmer had friends at the chocolate factory. Yeah. Uh, but there's just something, there's just that compulsion. And I think at a certain point, it would have flared up again, no matter how happy he might have been or accepted he might have felt by Reba. And I think that just seeing, um, you know, um, that sleazy uh, Patrick Bateman, uh, <laughs> not Patrick Bateman, but one of the other dudes that they're comparing the business cards. Or like the, the Jared Leto, Paul Allen character. Yeah. American Psycho. That, that, yeah. That's definitely, he was definitely very uh, Paul Allen-y. <laughs> yeah, very much, very much. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I, it's neat to watch him do that facial thing though. You're right, Lindsay. Cause it is, he goes from excitement to like, uh, you know, confused to mad to like really disappointed. And like, it's almost like, Oh, you've turned me back into the killer almost. And it's, I don't know. I wasn't expecting that quick of a flip. Yeah. I, and it did. It happened incredibly quickly. And I mean, quicker than I think it took you to even say all of the emotions that crossed his face. So the fact that he could, you know, exhibit that full range is impressive. And also a, a little shocking to see him rip the uh, the upholstery off of his van. <laughs> he, ri- he ripped the shagging wagon. I, mean, yeah, I couldn't believe he did. it. Yeah. Oh, that uh, that vinyl uh, on the dashboard would rip pretty easily if you had an '80s fan. <laughs> I mean that that was that was a seriously '80s van that had like the top deck lights and the whole nine. I mean that I think I had a Hot Wheels that sort of looked like that at one time. But uh, yeah, it's it's just funny to think about. I loved that shot of his hand crawling across the dashboard like a spider. Yeah, and you. And the the scraping noise of his hand, like on the dashboard, just set my teeth on edge. Man, and I think that's that's on purpose. That is supposed to now put you back on edge with this person that we've we've now given you reasons to like him. He took his girlfriend to pet a tiger, and then he you know he killed the awful reporter from the Inquirer. Wouldn't we all want to do that? Maybe we don't set him on fire, but at least we'd bite their face off. And you know he 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 seems to be coming around and then you see him just totally turn you're like oh shit this is about to go south real fast and it does and you you mentioned this word earlier ron and i'm going to borrow it and, and say it back perfunctory um this ending 
is incredibly perfunctory. Like it just sort of happens. And then it's like in a God of a shootout and we're done. And I couldn't find anything about it in all the reading of the movie, but it feels like what happens at the end of a movie when they've run out of money. You know, like we talked about it when we did Friday the 13th part two, that that rando scare at the end is just because they ran out of money and didn't know what else to do. And so they just did that and cut to the end. And I I don't know if that's true or not, but there's something too rushed about the last showdown of this movie that just doesn't work for me. It totally unravels it for me. What what do y'all think? I agree. I think the pacing of the whole movie in general kind of felt like that like the first half of the movie went very slow in the sense that they were it felt like time was taken to develop way more than needed to be developed and then the second half felt rushed I preferred the second half of the movie if I had to split it down and parse it out but um but yeah that it was very deus ex machina type of situation like all right we need to end this it's we're at time one thing i can definitely say for dino de Laurentiis is they probably didn't run out of money because <laughs> i think he could have just kept throwing he would have just kept throwing cash at something like this until he got what he wanted uh, one of the things I, I feel about the pace uh, especially at the end of the movie is that that's how kind of the whole investigation had progressed there would be these long periods where not much was happening. They were mulling things over. He was having conversations with Dennis Farina. And then you'd get like a, they would get the clue. They would find the toilet paper in the book and that would cue into a burst of frenetic activity where they would take it to this guy. They would take it to that guy and they would zap it with 80s lasers and they would turn red lights on and, and stuff like that. And it just, it the whole thing felt like kind of lull, 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 frantic, lull, lull, lull. It's like uh, it's like people describe combat as a whole bunch of boredom punctuated by like 10 minutes of abject terror. Right. And, and every cop will tell you the same. That's what it's like to be mm-hmm. a real one. And this is where I would say, like, Michael Mann's adherence to I want it to be like the real thing doesn't give the movie a watchability. It, it makes it brings the audience up and then we're just down and we're just down and we're down. And then it's back up real quick. But like the pacing is is weird. I know why he's doing it. But I, I think that's a problem. I don't feel like Michael Mann tries to. Uh, I don't feel like Michael Mann goes after watchability. I think he tries to go for authenticity above all things. I would agree with that statement. Yeah. I think if you said this, this pacing was unwatchable uh, and it was, it was difficult to watch because it was super slow and then super frantic and it felt really rushed, you would say, that's exactly what I was trying to do. You're welcome. That's, all, that's also why this movie failed at the box office, though, because nobody was there. We were not in a, in a time of the Arthur filmmaker in 1986, 1976. Yes. Like this plays completely differently if you play it next to Chinatown or, uh, you know, the French Connection or something like that. Uh, but you play it next to 1980s. You play it next to Miami Vice and it does not it doesn't match that energy. But I think that's also kind of what he was going for. He wanted to do the opposite of Miami Vice. He wanted to get away from, oh, this is so cool. Everything's neon. Let's roll up our the sleeves of our blazers kind of thing and get to something kind of dirty and unpleasant.
Lynch, you've been unmuting and muting back and forth. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I know. I was just yeah. thinking about what Ron was saying. And I was like, well, sometimes taking that contrarian approach does not pan out. And I don't think that that panned out for him in this movie. Yeah. Oh, let me prove that I can make something a little darker than Miami Vice. Or let me, you know, show people that I have a bigger range. And I don't think. I, I mean, this was early in his career, sure. So maybe he did feel like he had something to prove, and that's fair. He's done a lot. He's had a very good career. <laughs> so clearly this movie did not set him back. But uh, I I don't it, – it didn't it didn't work for me personally. The thing that really gets me, and I, I, don't, I don't know that I needed it to be you know, too over the top, but Dollar Hyde kind of goes down a lot easier than I thought he would. I mean, he shoots a couple of cops. One of them gets a shot into him. And Graham, who's had his face cut up a little bit at that point and is underneath the fridge that's toppled over on him, reaches for his gun through the ketchup and shoots him a few times. And you talk about some weird cuts. What in the age is all those cuts, man? Like, it's just really strange, like squib cut. Strange. I don't know. What I don't know if that's an artistic choice or just really shoddy editing, but there that's another part that ends this is like, what what just happened to him? I feel like I'm watching the end of Nighthawks where Sylvester Stallone, spoiler alert, is blowing Rutger Hauer into the next earth and he shoots him twice. And then when you see Rutger Hauer, it looks like he's running through a meat grinder. It's like, how the hell did he get to that? <laughs> you know, like it's just a weird cut. Okay. One of the things we could talk about at the end of the movie is that. They shot the final. They shot the finale at the end of principal photography, and most of the crew had already left and moved on to other things. So that whole shootout in the kitchen, like it was just people with like rubber hoses, and they would be blowing ketchup and corn syrup <laughs> through the rubber hoses to simulate wow. the squibs. Wow! Michael Michael Mann <laughs> himself uh, did the bullet impacts in the kitchen by just taking glass jars and throwing them at three things. So they would break wherever he wanted the bullets to go. And actually one of the things that happened was one of those uh, broken jars flying through the air, uh, stamped William Peterson in the thigh. Like he had a <laughs> hunk of glass oh stuck God. in his leg. So they didn't run out of money. They just ran out of people. <laughs> Basically. The yeah. Okay. Okay, now probably that explains because, so much. Yeah, probably because Dino had him moving on to do his next movie, and he just used the same guys. And he and just it, flew them all away without telling anyone. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, and there's that. Uh, Michael Mann's told the story about how he couldn't get an airline to let him shoot on it, so he just paid for everybody in the crew and the the actors to do that airport, so the airline scene where Graham, you know, the pictures fall over and that little girl sees it or whatever, and they bribed the pilots and the the flight attendants with like movie set jackets. And, and stuff like that, but they didn't tell the airline they were going to do it. They just, they literally brought cameras on carry-ons and just shot the damn thing because they're like, well, fine, TWA, we'll show you. <laughs> it's real guerrilla filmmaking. I mean, it, it'll get you by, but if that's the case. It works. At the end here, may, maybe we needed to call Dino and say, can we have four or five of those people back for a day, two days, something? Also, uh, <laughs> the, the very shot at the end where you've got uh, Tom Noonan dead, that's kind of alluding to the, the red dragon imagery that you keep going uh, that, that he went on about this whole time. But during the shooting, it took so long to get the shot that uh, Tom Noonan got stuck to the floor because of the corn syrup blood. 
And I just thought that was funny. That That's hilarious. <laughs> Fantastic. All this context right. does make me like the movie a little bit more. <laughs> but it's only the fact that you can read that and know that. Like when you watch it, it, it right? It's like, what? that's it? <laughs> like this yeah. sort of ends. It's like, yeah. oh, that's that's all we had. And then we go back to Florida and we got some makeup on and short shorts and Don Johnson's heartbeat. And that's it. Like that, that, I mean, it's a, that's a strange way to end that thing. Yeah. I mean, like a lot of other scenes, that last one dwelled just long enough to be uncomfortable (laughs) where you're just like, why am I watching this scene? Why is it still going? And granted the credits started rolling and that was fine. Um, there were a lot of those where like him running down the stairs, that spiral staircase, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah. Gra- mm-hmm. When Graham was, it felt like an outtake from family guy. <laughs> like an aside where they just go yes. over. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're at the part of the podcast where it's no longer time to you know belabor on our points. Let's talk about final thoughts, recommendations and popcorn ratings. So what are yours for Manhunter, Ron? I am going to give Manhunter a medium popcorn, kind of kind of edging towards a large popcorn. I think it worked for me a lot better than it worked for you guys, um, at least according to some of the stuff you've been saying throughout the recording. And I can see why the stuff that doesn't work for you doesn't work for you. But I appreciate Brian Cox is Hannibal Lecter. I appreciate that like five minutes of screen time he gets where he makes an indelible impression. And it is the most fondly remembered part of the movie. I a hundred percent appreciate Tom Noonan just being weird as all get out for, uh, for every moment he's on screen. I appreciate the fact we get to see a lot of uh, noteworthy actors fairly early on in their career. And I also really, uh, I think I'm just kind of in the bag for uh, Michael Mann's aesthetic. So even when it's a, a, a flawed, like prototype version of it, of the things Michael Mann does, I still appreciate it. Like I really appreciate a lot of the sound design that they did in this movie. I appreciated, uh, you know, the cinematography and the use of that uh, heavy wash lighting. I appreciate how much it tries to feel like like a noir film crime movie. Like it feels like almost like a 1930s kind of melodrama gangster flick. Uh, But if you bathe it neon and made it very sweaty. So uh, yeah, I'm going to go with the medium popcorn. I think it's still, I think the stuff that holds up still holds up really well. Um, Even, you know, 35 years after it comes on. And I can see why it's one of those movies that has grown in appreciation over the years as people kind of get uh, go back and get like Michael Mann's thing versus how they would have felt about it in 1986 when they were expecting Miami vice and they got something much less palatable. All right, Lindsay. So my first reaction to this movie initially was this is a terrible movie and I can't believe Jay told me to watch it. And then after I watched it, I thought to myself, you know, if I had found this movie in college, it would absolutely be one of my favorite movies because I feel like it's one of those quick cult classics that it's exactly the type of thing my friends and I would have watched over and over and over and over again in college. 
Um, and I would still find it very nostalgic now. Unfortunately, I'm watching it now. But after talking with you two fine gentlemen about this, uh, and actually, Ron, I love what you said about the noir. I think if I had watched this movie through the lens of watching a noir detective flick, I would have had a better appreciation for it when I watched it. And now I'm thinking back to it and certain things are kind of clicking with me now that didn't yesterday when I saw it. There were a lot of things in the movie that worked really well for me. There were more that didn't. After I watched it, I was like, this is getting a small burned popcorn. Hard, hard and flat lines, <laughs> small burned popcorn for me. But I will give it, I don't know if I'm right. I don't know if I'm at the medium popcorn level quite yet, but I would at least give it a small popcorn with extra butter. I think it's just enough. This movie borders on small, medium, schmedium, I think is what I've called that in the past. Or Nick, medium is good. Yeah, schmediums. And it's schmedium because that first half really, really is poorly put together it's interesting enough it's when they start getting into the actual police worky stuff that it starts going like okay now i'm now i'm in a procedural i can follow when we get into the we meet lecter i love brian cox echo all that ron i'm, I'm with you he's the best part of the movie and the other best part is the reba dollar hide relationship thing like that really works and it shouldn't like it's totally off-putting and weird but it totally works and that part of the movie is really interesting to me because it's I, you're, you're watching all this sort of work out and it's like wow what's this going to look like and how's this going to be and you know how's this can possibly work and then you know it gets to its perfunctory ending but you're right to call it noir because that's exactly what this is supposed to be it's it's detective noir thomas harris writes noir and red dragon's very much a noir kind of book with you know sprinklings of all that psychology and stuff like that the dichotomy of having these these characters and there's really three and lecture's the smallest piece of it but you have these people that are all the same person they're just two sides of you know the coin and there's two of them that are on the other side of the law and there's one that clearly is using his power for good like i said makes the story sort of unfold and work if the darn ending wasn't so again perfunctory and now knowing that they were pulling off of like three people and a you know a hamburger was <laughs> it's kind of amazing they got what they got out of it but i do feel like it just sort of flatlines all of a sudden like this movie finally finds its footing and it gets going and then it just drops and and i, I there's always parts of that that i feel like oh gosh it could have been so much more you know so i'm gonna give it a medium popcorn uh, I think it's right there in the between. It's definitely something though that is that is a good watch. Like there's there's nothing about it that I would call boring. It just doesn't all match and work. But again, as you're describing it, Ron, maybe that's what Michael Mann was going for was something that did not match the sensibilities of the time, or maybe what you expected. And maybe it's why it's taken it thirty through thirty five years of neon murder existence to find an audience because we're still talking about it. Other people are talking about it as well. So it was fun to revisit 
and chat about um, here. Speaking of noir films, though, coming up in September, Lynn, you and I did a big noir flick a while back that we're going to release. We're finally breaking the Orson Welles uh, glass here on Film Strip. We're doing the third. Yeah. We did the Third Man, so that that one's coming up down the lines. And before that, though, we got our friend Anthony from Tis the Podcast on to round out August. He and I talked about Knives Out, so that's kind of a neo noir. Ryan Johnson, uh, if people can forgive him for the Last Jedi, which you should because that's the best one of those. Uh, but anyway, Knives Out's a lot of fun, and Anthony and I have a good time talking about it. So lots of fun stuff coming up on Film Strip, and then wrapping up September, I had a chance to talk with True Crime official. Shinato Kelly from True Crime IRL, and we did New, No Country for Old Men. So we got this whole kind of crime thing going on here uh, after coming off of Ready Player One and Rapid Fire, a couple of big summer movie type things. And leading into, Ron, I guess we can go ahead and tease, is going to be a pretty epic Shocktober, I think. Oh, yeah. It's, it's going to be a Shocktober for the ages. We have all sorts of really cool special guests and we talk about some great movies that I'm really surprised it's taking us this long to finally get around to talk about. Absolutely. And then we'll be back again. Lots of stuff planned out for the end of the year here, some of which is already recorded, some of which you'll have to wait to open up when it's time uh, for presents. And uh, we'll see where it goes. But always fun to find things here on Filmstrip. You can follow the show, filmstrippodcast.com. It'll take you to the links of all the show and then at Filmstrip Pods where all the social media is and you can keep up with what's going on with the show. Share the show with other folks. Give us a five-star review wherever you find it. And if you can't give it a five-star review, well, just download it anyway. Download it on your mom's phone, whatever. Support independent podcasting because we do this for fun and the, the more people that interact with it, uh, we appreciate it. Hey, if you think we're all crazy and Manhunter is the greatest thing ever or the worst thing you've ever seen, let us know. Hit us up uh, again on, on our social We'll be glad to chat with you about it and explain to you how wrong you are. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but no, we do enjoy uh, interacting with all of you. So more to come here from Filmstrip as we go through. Ron Lenz, always good talking movies with you two. And we'll be back again soon to do more. So for Lindsay, for Ron, I'm Jay. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.